Let's roll when you're ready. No shuffling, no funny business. I can't guarantee the shuffling, but I can guarantee no funny business. All right, let me just shuffle a bit more. <clears throat> okay, I'm kind of ready, really. You tell me when and we'll do it. Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds. It sounds very grand uh, from my point of view. Uh, basically, it's a podcast and I've been persuaded, cajoled and strong-armed into making this podcast because I, I suppose really everyone around me in this particular house has said, really, it's be quite interesting to talk about your life and your work. And I'm... Um, I'm not convinced, and this podcast will uh, either persuade me that they're wrong or persuade me that I'm quite possibly I'm right. So yes, this is Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, and it's uh, looking at my life, my interests, and my career in comedy. They're moderated by our producer and engineer, Mark Edmonds. I will not give myself such... Uh... Fabulous titles, but we will we will try our best. We will try our best. Yes, but you started it by saying behind the scenes with Colin Edmonds. It sounds like I'm David Tennant taking you behind the scenes of Doctor Who or something. Well, maybe one day we'll get there. Oh, well, please God, we do. Yes, well, that'd be marvellous. But, so let's okay. let's start by giving everyone a little bit of background to you, the uh, man of the title. Oh, okay. So uh, you've been at the top of your profession, which is writing for the last 50 years. So why don't you tell everyone what's been your secret? <laughs> what's my secret? I tell, my secret is is dumb luck and persistence, sticking with it. Um, I'd, I'd kind of dispute that assertion of yours that I've been at the top for 50 years. I've been doing it for 50 years. I've been writing uh, comedy for television and performers for 50 years, uh, really without stopping. I've kind of rolled on from one series to another in my television career. And I put that down, as I say, to dumb luck and persistence. Um, I, as you know, Mark, I'm a great follower of Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And he said it, he, the way he said it the other day on Instagram, it kind of encapsulated in words better than I could form my philosophy. And he said, to be successful assuming I've been successful. To be successful, you haven't got to be the best person in the room, but you have got to be the hardest worker. And I'm I'm not given to too much in the way of self-aggrandizement, as well you know. But I will say this about myself. I have worked damn hard. I've really worked hard at my career. Um, more so than most, I think. And that might explain how I've sustained a career for so long. Mm. When did you actually get started in writing? What, uh, what kicked it all off? Uh, what kicked it all off was living in North West 10 in an upstairs flat with my mum and dad. Uh, in, uh, I would say, fairly impoverished circumstances, fairly reduced circumstances. My dad was a plumber uh, who wasn't very well paid. And my mum was a, a, let's call her a dinner lady. She was on playground patrol, which wasn't very well paid. And I, to escape that life... I 
absorbed books. I threw myself into the world of Edith Blyton and the famous five and uh, the secret seven. Pure escapism, because these kids of my age were having these tremendous adventures on islands off the south coast, on in uh, in circuses, and they were encountering encountering spies and villains, and they were solving crimes and shit like that, wonderful stuff like that. And I, and the world of Enid Blyton really struck me as being something that I could just live my life vicariously through. I suppose took me out of myself. And then I and I thought, oh, I wonder if I could have a go at writing a famous five book. So I I wrote a bit of a story, and basically it was Enid Blyton's story, just with characters of different names. And instead of Timmy the dog, I had I think I had Robin the cat or some such, if I remember rightly. It was the only concession to originality, <laughs> originality, changing the names of the five characters and saying oh, they've got a cat, not a dog. So that's how I started writing when I was. Seven, eight, nine, ten. And when did you get your first, um, I suppose, professional contract or get something commissioned? Oh, you mean um, writing for money? Yes, writing yeah. for money, earning a little bit of a return for your efforts. Yes, exactly. That was fifteen pounds. I was sixteen at the time, and at that time. When I was growing up on television, there were a lot of variety shows and there were a lot of shows that you could submit material to, comedy material to. And I liked the idea of trying to write for television. I, I, I knew I wasn't quite on the right track with book writing because book writing took a long time. And I, I found that writing uh, comedy jokes and comedy sketches were were quicker. You could turn out a page of jokes much, much faster than you could turn out a writer to a uh, 35-minute sitcom requiring 60 pages of of witty dialogue and perfectly formed characters. That was a that was a huge time investment, and I was I was hungry to crack on. I really was. I was. I, was, I guess I was desperate for it at the age of 16. So I sent some sketches to a show called the Dave Allen Show hosted by a wonderful Irish comedian a great raconteur um, who was wasn't a stand-up comedian he was a sit-down comedian uh, he sat on a stool and had a, a table at waist level to one, to one side on which sat his glass of whiskey uh, and his ashtray because he smoked as he performed and told these long convoluted hilarious stories with great literal wonderful wonderful use of words to great effect not something that you see on TV now. No, no, absolutely not. He had time to make the comedy breathe, and you you hung on his every word because he was so eloquent. And but interspersed with these particular stories and long form jokes were short, sharp sketches called quickies, and a lot of them were religious of, of a religious nature. Uh, he he treated religion, all religions, with Equal contempt, I think, <laughs> be safe to say. And uh, all, the, all the sketches were religious-based, mocking various religious dogma. And uh, always had a priest or a nun or, or a vicar. So I wrote a couple of these particular quickies and submitted them to the BBC because in those days that's what you could do. There, you, you send your material to the Dave Allen Show, care of BBC Television Centre, Wood Lane, and it would the great sack of material would arrive in the Dave Allen 
office, David Allen Show office, and uh, Ian Davidson, the script editor, would be uh, deputed to open up the envelopes and sift through the material. Uh, submissions from amateur writers, kitchen sink writers, as well as professionals, and sort out the wheat from the chaff, and the stuff he thought was half decent, he'd pass on. And one of my sketches was accepted. Um, I won't bore you with the details, because it's actually one of is probably not very good. But it was about a 20-second piece of silent comedy based on a, a church collection, the collection plate going around. And, uh, uh, yeah, got made, filmed and broadcast. So my first television credit um, on a comedy show, or on any kind of show, uh, was when I was I was 16 coming on 17. Must have been one of the uh, youngest commissioned writers. Yeah, yes, I was. I was certainly one of the youngest accepted writers, mm. and I was the youngest writer in comedy for a very long time. Um, I was the first comedy writer to have a situation comedy episode uh, accepted when I was 18 years old. Uh, that was for a, a Thames television show called... Bless This House, which starred the Carry On star Sidney James and his family. Uh, that show was bought and paid for. 360 quid. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 360 quid. God, it was a king's ransom. Show didn't get made because there was a, a makeup strike. And so. My week of the, the week of my recording coincided with the strike, and so therefore my show wasn't made. And so, as a consequence, I wrote that they asked. They, I say they, uh, a very clever uh, and encouraging writer called Vince Powell, who helped create Bless This House and created another. Se- like it created a dozen shows, uh, comedy shows, which ran on TV. But one of his additional creations was Love Thy Neighbor. Uh, which was the top show of the time. It was a huge ratings hit. And he said, really sorry how things panned out with Bless This House. If you want to have a go at Love Thy Neighbour, because we're throwing that open, by all means, have a go. And I got the opportunity to write an episode of Love Thy Neighbour, which was accepted. Another 360 quid. You you got paid for the first one as well. Got paid for the first one as well, because it wasn't my fault that Mm. Bless This House didn't get made. Bless This House didn't get made. And then I got... Uh, commissioned and paid Love Thy Neighbour. Wow, another 360 quid. So suddenly I'm earning some money and Love Thy Neighbour got made and Love Thy Neighbour aired when I was still um, probably, yes, when I was 19. So I think at that time I was the youngest sitcom writer in the country. So I had a sitcom aired, bought, produced and aired when I was 16. So I've been a young writer ever since I was young. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and it was great because suddenly I realised that you can you can write comedy and you can get paid for it and yeah and that was my driving force and uh, why why was it comedy rather than say drama I know you said you preferred jokes to sketches yeah but um, was it the laughter that gave you the sort of encouragement to go into comedy or was it the, fi- the finances both why did you choose comedy but I think I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching those variety shows on TV in those days. Shows like Sunday Night at the London Palladium and various BBC comedy sketch shows like The Two Ronnies, Dave Allen, the aforementioned, and shows that ITV were showing at the time. And I, I, I just like that sound of laughter. Uh, the fact that a performer could do something or say something and the audience would react in that way. I thought that was magical. The fact that words could make an audience 
react with such merriment and joy. Uh, that was magical to me. And I thought, well, I want to be, I want to be a part of that. I said grandly to myself, I want to be a part of that. And then we'll proceed to do so. But it was, once again, as I say, it was dumb luck and persistence. And you've got to stick with it. You've got to want it badly enough. And I think even from an early age, I wanted it badly enough because I, I just wanted to improve my lot. I really did. So moving along your career, I suppose, to the peak of your career, um, <laughs> for almost... 50 years you wrote for Bob Monkhouse and the last 20 years of his life as his head head writer. Mm-hmm. So why do you think you stayed with Bob for so long and what what clicked between the two of you? Uh, that's a good point. Very good point to make. Good question. I, what, I'll come to what clicked later on. Uh, what made me want to submit jokes to Bob Monkhouse was... I'd seen him on The Golden Shot, those very early episodes of a show called The Golden Shot, which is a really strange um, television show, a live television show. And the way he handled the chaos of that particular show without going into boring details of what was involved, the fact that it involved contestants firing live crossbows in a studio <laughs> gives you some idea of the the chaos and the absurdity of the concept but the fact that he could handle that with such style and be very very funny at the same time really impressed me so I sent some jokes to him because uh, I, I knew what he was I, I knew he was at the studio on that Saturday or on those Sundays so I, I, knew, I knew I'd send it to the right address at least and he got the stuff and he wrote back to me he was one of the few comedians that I'd submitted material to, jokes to, who bothered to write back saying, yeah, 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 I think what it was, you know, Mark, I think because he started early writing jokes for his performers when he was very, very young, I th- maybe he recognised that same kind of audacious tenacity in me, could identify with it to a large extent. But that's as maybe. He wrote back saying, these jokes show some potential. Um, I can't use any of them. But please, please let me not, let me not discourage you. Please send any material you, you you want to write to me whenever you want to do it. And that kind of letter, which I've still got in the office, uh, was the encouragement I needed. I thought, oh yeah, this guy understands um, what I'm about. Mm. And you then tune into what he's saying, and suddenly you get a couple of jokes on the golden shot, and suddenly you get a. a Suddenly you get a check for 50 quid saying, I used two of these jokes in cabaret last night and they went quite well. And suddenly, yeah, okay, maybe I can do this. All the time submitting material to other writers, but without the feedback and without the success um, from them. I always got feedback. I always got, I didn't always get a check from Bob, but I'm often, he was very fair. I got a check from Bob. So how did it work? Did he did he take some of your jokes and then gradually you came on more and more until you were full time with him and yeah. writing alongside yeah. him on every show? Yeah. Bear in mind I was writing for him from my teens. I was writing for Bob while I was writing Bless This House and Love Thy Neighbour or submitting those particular scripts. I was still writing cabaret jokes for Bob so he could perform those in a live uh, environment. Uh, at nightclubs or wherever he was playing because there was a huge nightclub scene in those days and Bob had a great thirst for new material jokes that he could perform based on the news headlines of that morning Mm. and and if I had a forte maybe it was writing topical jokes which appealed to him uh, quite so well 
And I then got a job at IPC. I, I, I took my O-levels, took my A-levels, did okay. Wasn't Certainly wasn't bright enough to go to university. Uh, so got very fortunate to get a job at IPC magazines. Largely because I think of all the applicants on on the form, I wrote what are you, when they asked what are your hobbies. My hobbies are writing jokes and selling them to performers. And I think maybe that just gave me the edge over the other people who were submitting uh, their applications for this particular job. So I got this job as a trainee in kids comics, which was an extraordinary um, experience. Really, it taught me a great deal about the brevity of writing and, and visual writing because obviously it was a, it was it was a a, 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 com- a, a, a comedy comic getting laughs for younger children supposedly and it was a great experience but and I wasn't actually I wasn't very good at it I wasn't very good at IPC magazines eventually I left and to pursue a full-time career as a comedy writer which was a gamble uh, to give up a, a nice job with with a great future to it but I, my heart's not in it I'm not good at it and so I, I quit and as soon as I quit I really didn't stop I, I, I sustained a television career for the next 50 years, building all the time. It didn't start off hugely successful, but towards the end, it just it, it, it built. I mean, you wrote for a number of people, so there was quite a a, a diverse uh, stage of performers that you've written for. So the likes of Terry Wogan, Jimmy Tarbuck. Uh, Paul Daniels, Chris yeah. Tarrant, yeah. Joe Pasquale, yeah. with all the different people that you've written for and with, was it hard to adapt to their differing styles? Because I'm sure each of them has a different delivery. Yeah, yeah. And the simple answer is no, it wasn't difficult at all. I found it very easy to swap voices for performers you could sell the same joke to, the, to those each of those different performers as long as you couched your joke in a different in way in their style um if you could do an impression of them i suppose helped because terry was a ah now listen old scrivener listen here because he always called me scrivener which i thought was a lovely expression um his was a lovely lyrical laid-back eloquent style of performance whereas chris tarrant was a crisper sharper uh more attacking style of of, of performance um and paul daniels was no no listen oh it was that that kind of lovely kind of high-pitched northern style that paul had i had no trouble at all in writing the same joke for all those people but as long as you wrote it in the way that they would say it the trick is i always found is not what would they say is what they wouldn't say Terry wouldn't say it like that. Terry would say it this way. So you'd have to get into their voice. Very much, yeah, get into their voice. In fact, Terry was very flattering. He, he sent he sent a note saying, are you sure we're not related because you write Wogan more than I do? It's like, you write sharper Wogan than I can write Wogan, uh, which is a lovely thing to say. Not true at all because Terry was the most eloquent uh, and articulate man that, and what a wise man that God ever put breath into and is what a joy to know that man gee whiz when you think about it I hadn't thought about it until now um, I, I used to write for Terry Wogan on an annual basis on um, on a sh- big show in Hyde Park called Proms in the Park there were about 40,000 people in the audience and Terry would be up there introducing opera stars and pop stars and stuff that's his maybe um, 
I also wrote uh, for Terry on the Eurovision Song Contest run-up shows. Um, when the Eurovision Song Contest, the annual uh, Beanfest in some European capital, uh, was being held, in the UK, producers would choose six songs and then the audience, the television audience would be invited to vote for one of those songs, which would be their choice to go forward to represent the UK and the Eurovision Song Concerts. It was called Make Your Mind Up or that, those kinds of things. And it was always hosted by Terry. And a new, no, a new producer, a clever man called Guy Freeman. Uh, he was producing this particular year. And he phoned me up and he said, he said, I've just read your script for Terry. He said, I can hear Terry saying it. And I said, yeah, that's my job. That's what I do. But afterwards, on reflection, it, it was the best praise I could possibly have because I knew I was doing the job then. Now, I, don't mean to sound, I, don't, I don't wish to sound swanky because I'm not, but that's the truth. And that that was encouraging as well. So that's a long way of saying, nah, it, it, you, you can switch between performers. You really can. That's a lovely compliment. Oh yeah, it was. It, it was. It was. It's. It's nice to get those pats on the back from time to time. Um, so now, just moving to, I suppose, the latter stage, the current stage of your <laughs> career, <laughs> the elderly stage, <laughs> my dear. Uh, not quite. Not quite. Um, now you're writing books. You've had a bit of a shift. Why the change? I. Th- the change came about really. Because comedy changed, suddenly a new wave of comedian was coming through. They were writing their own stuff, uh, and their attitude to comedy was different. And most of my people were dead <laughs> that I wrote for, quite frankly. And I, I couldn't tune into the new performers. Now there was a lot of older performers when I was writing uh, full time, you know, all day and every day, and luckily going from show to show to show without stopping a lot of performers I worked for that I couldn't get on with couldn't tune into didn't much like didn't much like they didn't much like me so those relationships lasted not very long and I and I couldn't quite tune into what the new guys would were, were saying and what they were doing and so I thought now either this the comedy writing business is going to give me up or I've got to give it it up and I I didn't want to be given up so I'd much rather walk away. And so I, I did. So I sat, I walked away, sat and moped for a couple of years because I had nothing really to do. I didn't like that. And, I, and once again, it's hard work again. I was so used to that work ethic, getting up and getting to writing stuff. Mm. And I'd lost that momentum and I was missing that enormously. And so I thought, I'd write a comedy drama for television. Uh, so I wrote a 90-page uh, script called Smoke and Mirrors about a music hall comedian and his assistant who it wasn't about a music hall comedian at all it was about a music hall comedy magician comedy magician and his assistant who uh, were invited by Scotland Yard to help solve Victorian X-Files type crimes and I sent it to a, a producer a well-known producer a very successful producer director called Jeffrey Posner and his partner David Tyler who's one of the most significant comedy radio producers um, and they were back saying we quite like this script um, we'd like for you to make these changes please and the changes they suggested were brilliant they were so spot on so I made the changes and they tried to sell the show for me they tried to sell Smoke and Mirrors and couldn't 
uh, for one reason or another. It was too expensive. And Ripper Street had just started. And it was kind of similar. I couldn't get it away. So that then sat on the shelf for about a year until it, uh, Catherine, your mum, Catherine said, why don't you turn that television script that's sitting there gathering dust, why don't you turn it into a book? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Because I'd always wanted to write a book ever since those lovely days of Enid Blyton all those years ago. Mm. So suddenly, here we are, 40, whatever it is, 50 years later, suddenly I'm, I've got the opportunity to write, and the motivation to write a book. Because the television script was there. I knew the characters worked, and I knew the plot worked, because Jeffrey Posner and David Tyler had told me they did. And I'll take it from them, thank you very much. So I thought, yeah, maybe it needs a bit more. Now, I'd always been interested in steampunk, which is a, a genre of science fiction which is set in the Victorian era. Uh, if, I, if I add a bit of colour and costume to my narrative in the book, that might just give it another another element. It won't be just a kind of a Sherlock Holmes knockoff. Uh, he's a magician and his assistant solving crimes. Now, if I put them in a, a steampunky environment, that would give it another element, another edge. So then suddenly Smoke and Mirrors became a novel called Steam Smoke and Mirrors. And I got very fortunate uh, with a, a small publisher in Kent called Caffeine Nights. And then suddenly, 50 years on, my ambition had been fulfilled. Suddenly, I was a, the writer of a novel. And now uh, now a full trilogy, no less. Full trilogy. Trilogy of novels. Yes, there's three. There's three in the trilogy. There will be five. <laughs> but, um, and maybe even six, I don't know. But what it did, i tell you what it did, Mark. It put me back on... In, in, in the office chair, looking at that QWERTY keyboard, that keyboard, typewriter, computer keyboard, which I'd looked at for all those years. They'd been my, 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 they'd been my friend for all that time. And I was back doing it. I had purpose again. And I was typing stuff and I could, I could put a few jokes in as well. So I could satisfy that angle of my, my career. Uh, but ostensibly it's a Victorian murder mystery, which I've been a great fan of. Science, with a science fiction element, which I'm a huge fan of. I love fantasy and science fiction. So suddenly I was fulfilling all my dreams with these particular books and that, God, how lucky am I to still be doing it at my great age. And although we'll be doing more episodes about steampunk and the books yes. and also uh, your perspective on show business and the behind the scenes uh, view that you can give. You mean in, in, in terms of this podcast? In terms it's, of this podcast. See, this is a, a weird new departure. Who'd have thought that I'd be talking to a microphone <laughs> and, and expecting, hope, no, not expecting at all, hoping that someone somewhere might be interested in what I've got to say. It's real, I think this is, it's, we live in fascinating times. Well, I think it, people with uh, similar interests will definitely want to hear what you've got to say. But in terms of the books... Yes. I know a lot of people always say, well, what is steampunk? And I know you said it's sci-fi, a bit of sci-fi in the Victorian era. Yes. Is there any um, any more description that you might be able to give for people so that they can sort of get a, a vision in their mind as to what the steampunk universe looks like for someone that doesn't know what it is? Well, steampunk's a, uh, an entire genre. Uh, encapsulates every creative element be it costume designing, art, writing, uh, designing new weapons. Um, 
it, if you could just, it's just imposing a steam-driven society, which the Victorian era was, but gracing it with ray guns, if you like. Uh, Nikola Tesla is was is a great hero of the steampunk movement. Uh, and he, if you examine Tesla's career, he was a great one for, for he could have developed a ray gun if he if, if he'd had the encouragement and hadn't encountered the obstacles that he had in the Victorian era. I mean, apparently um, he had he had an he had, yeah, Tesla had an invention whereby he could transmit electricity um, through the air somehow. This machine over here could power that stuff over there, but there wouldn't be a wire between them. So in 18... Oh, God, what was he? It was 1880... The 1880s and the 1890s, uh, he was working with wireless technology before we ever... God knows how many years before we were. Uh, and so as a consequence, uh, without getting the, the finances and the difficulties they encountered, it, that really didn't progress now if that had progressed suddenly you know it, the victorian era would be slightly just slightly out of kilter uh, to as we remember it as history uh, so it's not yeah what am i trying to say i'm trying to say it's an alternative victorian history so it's all sorts of wacky inventive um take on machinery in the victorian era and i suppose a different fashion and Different, uh, different way of life. A little yeah. bit more quirky. Sure. I mean, you you could you would be a Victorian gentleman uh, in your top hat and your tailcoat, but you'd have a jetpack on your strapped <laughs> to your back, so you could take off somewhere. Uh, that that kind of stuff. In fact, what it does, I suppose, steampunk just opens your imagination to anything you want. For example, H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, Georges Méliès, long before H.G. Wells was firing a rocket to the moon uh, in cinematic form in the early days of cinema. You know, H.G. Wells had invaders from Mars. H.G. Uh, Wells had people taking off to the moon. And he was he originated in the Victorian era. And so there was, a, there was a huge interest in not only the supernatural, but the progression of science uh, at that time, in the pre-Edwardian time. And steampunk kind of taps into that, but magnifies it. And I tell you what it is: it's the that creativity that inspires me uh, in going to steampunk, which I'm sure we'll we'll come to this in in previous uh, in uh, in future episodes. Well, yes, here I'm, I'm still stuck in the past <laughs> <laughs> in future episodes. But it's so creative and I, and so exciting. And the people that I've met at steampunk conventions are so enthusiastic and so inventive. You think, oh, these are such clever people, geniuses, I think, with their imagination and their ability as engineers and makers and designers uh, to produce this, this visually stunning stuff, which is of, of, the, of the steampunk genre. And I'm honoured and pleased and flattered to be rather slightly involved in it and it's such a departure from my comedy career that's what makes it all the more exciting for me well i think that's been a a, a very 
very good roller coaster ride through your career. Um, I'm sure we will touch specific aspects of it throughout more episodes, like the showbiz stars that you've uh, written for and more on the books and steampunk yeah. and films and your interests. Um, but for now, we will end the first episode there. So thank you all very much for listening. From the man of the title himself. <laughs> thank you. Well, that's me. That's me. Thank you. This behind the scenes with Colin Edmonds, it's sort of got a got a ring to it, I suppose. We'll stick with it. <laughs> I will say. Right. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate that.